Hey, 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 y'all ready for some dogma? Dogma, what does that invoke in your, in your thoughts? Huh? That's a real question. What's dogma? What does that do to you, to hear me say dogma? Getting excited, Doug? <laughs> oh, you're excited about the chicken, all right. Well, listen, welcome all of you. I know that, um, you know, it's, it's always hard to get out on a weeknight when you've worked all day, and I'm sure many of you are tired. I'm a little bit tired. Anybody have a good day? Anything, anybody had a really horrible day? There you go. Gary, can we pray for you? Absolutely, right? I'm sorry you've had a hard day. Well, seriously, um, this is sort of, uh, we're still experimenting. We have just enough to meet down here, not a little too many to meet upstairs. I see some others coming, so it's probably good that we met down here. Um, and as you well know, we're, we're also going to be uh, live camming this or live streaming this to those who would like it. Unfortunately, we won't see them. They'll see us. Um, but if you are there already, I don't know if you've already connected with them there, but we, we welcome you. We do know you're there. Um, they will be able to communicate with us vis-a-vis -vis, uh, texting on the YouTube. So you know how you look at a YouTube? They, they'll actually be able to uh, get in there that way. And uh, I believe, Aaron, you're going to be following that. Is that right? Yeah. So if we do get any uh, text, we can do that. Um, and I'm not sure if they're all in there yet or not. So come on in. Well, listen, let's, let's, this is meant to be a collaborative. And I, wanna, I really want to emphasize that. Um, this has been one of the most celebrated and, and enjoyable things that we do at CPC is we actually like theology and we don't put it on the bookshelf and it actually is fun. So, uh, so I hope that you will have fun. Um, we really want you to feel that, that spirit of collaboration because uh, as you'll see, this is, is uh, as I said in the introduction, on the website, if you, how many of y'all, by the way, I should ask this right off the bat. Now, how many of you have accessed the syllabus? How many have it? Let's put it that way. Anybody has not? One, two, okay. You, do you have something with you right now that you can do that? We're, we're in the, the green uh, era here. So we will not be giving you any papers that I can think of. We might. So, uh, so what you want to do is you will want to always go online uh, prior to getting here, preferably. You could do it now as well, but if everybody got online at the same time, you know, it's going to, uh, you know, kind of crash our system probably, although we have a pretty good system now. We've got a lot of bandwidth over here. But um, so what you want to do in the future is you'll want to go online and look at the syllabus. Uh, can you do that and show them what we're looking at? Yeah. This guy's the technical guru here. Thank uh, everybody. Give uh, Aaron a big applause. Hey, he set this whole thing up. And Chris, Chris, oh yeah, where's Chris? Chris? Chris has been like unbelievable. He's totally rewired the whole building for yeah. us. So uh, I'm not lying either. Really, he yeah. has. <laughs> He's rewired the whole building in terms of our uh, stuff. So, so there you go. He's going on the website just to show you where this is, and uh, you go up to current classes. Yeah. So we go to Discipleship, School of Discipleship, and on the menu here is Current Classes. And you click there and you can see right here the different things going on. And we have Confessional Theology. And here we go. There we are. And here's all the information, the syllabus, the class, um, itinerary, 
Kevin? So let me let me walk you through this real briefly. Um, since someone has not seen it, why don't we just read the course description? I'd like to start with that, um, and then we're going to have a little prayer time, and then I'm going to walk you through the syllabus a little bit. Could someone read that for us? Just kind of warm us up a little bit. Who's got it in front of them on your on your website? Anybody? Sally's computer's open. I downloaded the. So I have to download it. All right. Would you mind reading it? No, no, I'm sorry, I don't have. It. Oh, you don't have it downloaded. Does anybody have it, either live or downloaded? All right, then I'm going to ask you to do it. Could you read it? Um, well, it's gone now. There it is. Okay. I don't have it either. All right. You want me to read it? Yeah, if you okay. would mind. The primary aim of this course in confessional theology is to assist the student, seeker, and or believer in constructing the kind of holistic worldview that is thoroughly informed by what the Christian scriptures principally teach. Our method is confessional. The confessional method is distinguished from systematic, historical, philosophical, or even social theology, if also sharing in some elements inherent to each of them. It is at the end an exercise of faith formation that will consider the related topics as from the vantage point of divine revelation intended for people of faith. It therefore involves reading the Bible communally as revealed not only to individuals, but to that organic body of Christ described as the pillar and bulwark of the truth. Such communal interpretation has the advantage of transcending any one geopolitical historical expression. It is an attempt to understand God's revelation in Scripture, aided by that consensus of the church across the ages. Our primary source will be within Westminster Confession of Faith, one historical expression of the Catholic faith. A secondary aim of this course is to satisfy one of the prerequisite courses for becoming a CBC Sunday School teacher and community discipleship group facilitator, elder, and women's leadership board member. All right. So there it is. We have a course begun, and we're glad you're with us. And I hope that's relatively clear, and you're going to today learn a little bit more about this language of confessional theology. Now, typically, when I say the word confessional, what do you think of? What's in your head? First thing that comes to your mind, confessional. Confessing sin. Yep, confessing sin. Well, this is not going to be a confessional in that sense, although we may find and discover all sorts of sins, especially the sins of the mind, because we'll see all these things that we thought were true that might not be true. Who knows? So there may be a little mental confessions. There may be some others, but... Um, for the most part, what we mean by confessional is think of the term Westminster Confession of Faith. Um, by the way, there are two of these books available if you if you are really old school and you like paper, like my wife. Here's one for you. <laughs> I know you were asking for it. Um, so, uh, so think, when we use the term confessional, what we are referring to is that great and, and, and sacred history of confessing faith. And that is a very different um, process, isn't it? I mean, it's one thing to try to take these abstract, rational ideas, systematize them, put them in a rational, philosophical order. Um, all that's, that might happen in a confessional theology, but it's not what really is happening. What's really happening is we are entering into a deeply personal, deeply collaborative, because we want to do this communally and helping one another and doing it with 
our communion of the church over 2,000 years, you know, we are not the first people to be reading the Bible. And so uh, we're going to do it with the church. And how do you do that? Well, you do it. We're going to talk more about this. But basically, you do that by means of reading the church, the, the scriptures with the church. And as the church of all ages, of all time, places, Catholic church, in the, in the small c sense, and with our church, we're going to discern what the scriptures principally teach. That's a phrase that you'll hear a lot about, what the scriptures principally teach. This isn't going to go into exegesis, although it's hopefully uh, derived from exegesis or the, the interpretation of the Bible. Um, and we'll learn more about that as we go in terms of how we do it and what that method is. But that's what we mean by a course in confessional theology. And the very point I'm trying to make is I really hope that this will become a, a deeply collaborative, back and forth, thoughtful kind of an experience. Uh, this isn't meant to be abstract. This isn't meant to be, you know, uh, I don't know, just, just doing this in order to do some academic exercise. Um, and so I don't care where you are. Some of you, maybe you're very new to the Christian faith. Maybe you're not even a Christian. That's fine. Um, you know, you're going to be right deep in the middle of what do Christians believe? Um, maybe you've been a Christian for a long time, whatever and wherever you are, what I would recommend to you is what I got to do when I went to seminary. Um, I've been in ministry for seven years. By the time I was going to seminary, I've been leading, you know, relatively, you know, large and successful movement of campus ministries. I had been, you know, I had staff. I was steeped in ministry in Christendom, and I was burnt out. And I'll never forget that experience when I went to seminary and said, you know, God, I got to start all over. I, I just kind of, zeal was my my asset. You know, basically, it was, a, it was a classic sort of thing where, you know, I came to Christ, I had some zeal, someone threw me up in leadership, and it never stopped. Um, and so this was a moment for me when I could say, Lord, I'm not going to take anything for granted. And I went through those three years, and I mean, truly, got in my little cubicle. Lisa couldn't believe it, literally. I was the most antisocial. I found that other side of me. And I got in a cubicle, more or less, and just started asking every question I could ask. Beginning with, do I really, I mean, really, do I believe in God? And so I hope that spirit is here. That's, I mean, I can't stand Christianity. If What I mean by that is that we come in here and we play Christendom. And I don't, I don't think you do either. You're not in this church because you, you're attracted to that kind of stuff. I don't think. And so I, I really want to encourage you. Uh, if you're sitting there and you're thinking, oh, my God, I can't. I mean, I'm trying to put myself in your shoes. If some of you are here and maybe you've been a Christian for a year or two, um, I can remember. I mean, if you'd asked me to pray at that stage of my life, I would have literally crawled under a hole. Um, if you had asked me to get into a conversation like that, I would have been petrified because I would have thought, you know, all these people, they, they got it all together if they even know these big words. And so I would have been petrified. I just, I'm probably going to use words that I shouldn't use as in big words. And if you don't understand those words, and if I don't explain them, you really are going to gain my respect if you don't just sit there and kind of play Christendom. But if you really say, hold on, what the heck does that word mean, pastor? And I'm just going to go, oh, oh, I love you. That's, that's a real person really trying to grapple with, with truth here. And that's what we want, right? So I hope that I'm just setting the mood for you a little bit right now. And um, 
To kind of get us started, though, I do want to talk about this word dogma. And to help us do it, uh, have any of you, each table I'm hoping will have at least someone with a copy of the addendum that's in this. By the way, I gave you this big handout. I hope you didn't tr uh, try to copy it all out on a piece of paper, because if you did, it's probably large. About uh, almost two-thirds two of it's addendum. And I give it to you just to have access to it, and we might refer to it here and there. But addendum number one is a little exercise that I'd like to start up right now at the table. Um, and it's basically this exercise by uh, Dorothy Sayers on dogma. Would someone, could everyone at the table, does everyone have access to that? Does someone, at least one person at the table have it? If not, raise your hand. Y'all look at each other and talk. <laughs> Is it what's on the screen? No. No. Uh, you could actually go on the screen and probably put it up there, actually, if you wanted to go to the uh, syllabus, I mean, go to the actual handout. If you go to the handout, no, it's not on here. you got to go to the handout. Down there, down, down. See it? Yeah, right there. Do that. It's page 15. It's page 15 of your handout. Has everybody got one? So I'd like to, I'd like to ask each table um, if someone could, I tell you what, maybe what we ought to do is read it out loud and then y'all do the discussion questions. That might be the way to go. Do you have it up there yet? Go down to page 15. There you go. Thank you. There we go. Is that it? Yeah. Yeah. So let's do this. Let's just read these paragraphs. This is a little, a little piece that I wrote a long time ago just to, to start a conversation like this. So uh, just any of you that, that feel bold and, and don't mind stumbling through reading, because I know we'll all stumble, so don't worry about it. Uh, let's read this little, these couple of paragraphs all the way down to where we get the discussion questions. Who'd like to start? Well, let's pray first. So, Father, we do thank you for... Uh, this night, we thank you for the blessing of having a community together. Uh, we do pray, Lord, now that you will help us as we really, truly collaborate. Um, we pray that we do so with your Holy Spirit present. We know that apart from your spirit, our hearts and minds are not prepared to receive such glorious thoughts. And we pray, Lord, that we would do so in a manner that's pleasing to Christ. We pray all this in Christ's name. Amen. All right, so what we're going to do is we're going to read it, and then you guys are going to get to know each other a little bit at the table. If you don't know each other, introduce yourselves when we get to that time. All right, who wants to start? Thank you. The dogma is the drama. These are words spoken by Dorothy Sayers concerning the play she scripted entitled The Zeal of Thy House. The action of the play involved a dramatic presentation of a few fundamental Christian dogmas. She tells of an incident involving its production when the producer sought to edit out certain tedious complexities of dogma, to which Sayers insisted, if my play was dramatic, it was not in spite of the dogma, but because of it. Next. With the zeal to reach today's emergence, shall we say postmodern generation, there is an increasing trend to downplay the use of creeds and confessions, especially in worship, in order to accommodate to a general distrust of such things as if creeds and confessions are expressions of institutional power plays or intolerance of others. For instance, however astute are the observations and questions raised by Brian McLaren, 
His program of emergent spirituality is perhaps best exposed in the title, A Generous Orthodoxy, Why Why I Am Admissional and Evangelical and Post-Protestant and Liberal Conservative and Mystical Poetic and Biblical and Charismatic Conoslative and Fundamentalist Calvinist (laughs) and Anabaptist Anglican and Methodist and Catholic and Green and Incarnation incarnation and depressed, yet hopeful and emergent and unfinished. Next. As the subtitle suggests, one is left with the impression once penned by G.K. Chesterton that if a person believes in everything, he tends not to believe in nothing but in everything. Indeed, notwithstanding a biblical case for creedalism is in in its own right, Dorothy Sayers also raises the issue of whether or not such trends are losing the drama in life and and in worship. Here again, Sayers reminds us of a conversation that Jesus once had with a woman at the well. In her words, Christ in his divine innocence said to the woman of Samaria, you worship what you do not know, being apparently under the impression that it might be desirable on the whole to know what one was worshiping. He thus showed himself sadly out of touch with 20th century mind, for the cry today is away with the tedious complexities of dogma. Let us have the simple spirit of worship, just worship, no matter of what. The only drawback to this demand for a generalized and undirected worship is in the practical difficulty of arousing any sort of enthusiasm for the worship of nothing in particular. <laughs> yeah, she's a little cynical, isn't she? <laughs> Next. Again, in the words of Dorothy Sayers, let us in heaven's name drag out the divine drama from under the dreadful accumulation of slipshod thinking start looking at some of those questions at the table, would you? You have the questions up there? You can pull them up so everybody can see them a little bit higher. So just somebody start talking. Let's look at the questions. And if y'all, if you're in a small table and you want to combine with another small table, you can do that. There are three guys and there's three people here, so I don't know. So let's have a conversation. Get it started. Okay. Let's, let's all regroup. By the way, everyone, welcome. We have six, I believe six or seven, seven live stream groups going on right now or, or, or homes. So say hello, everybody. They can see you. You just can't see them. Well, now you can't see anything. But uh, So why don't you get us back in there or, or whatever. But um, so, so real quickly, just what, what kind of emerged in that conversation? I'm just going to go around. How about you guys over there? What was sort of some, the... What, what sort of emerged out of your conversation? Anything that you want to talk about? That group over there. Good. 
So, so you're probably getting one of the reasons people are shy about beliefs. Is that right? Yeah, that's a great comment. I mean, isn't it true that a lot of people see doctrine or dogma? Dogma is just a stiff word for doctrine. Okay, we'll just leave it at that. But uh, uh, it's more than that. It's actually a, it's an authorized doctrine is what doc, dogma is. Um, but, but yeah, a lot of people perceive it as the enemy of unity. And yet it begs the question, well, what is it that we are, what unifies us if not that we believe something similar, that we are believing in, and uh, living for something similar. So, so that's a great observation. What about this group? A take-home from that group. What would be a take-home thought? Comment. And if you guys can speak up and then I'd say, well, it'd be helpful. Thank you. No, nobody's going to talk. <laughs> right there. Or just give me a take-home. That's a huge observation. I mean, I think people generally are afraid of doctrine because what? You're going to feel judged. You're going to feel judged by it. We live in a culture that speaks about tolerance. And, um, and so, you know, the, the classic, if that works for you, that's great. You know, and, and this idea of doctrine is scary because it, it, it comes with the baggage that we actually think that there's truth and non-truth. Right? Doctrine, this idea that there's something to believe in, there is good and things can be wrong. And so, uh, of course, there's a whole philosophical, cultural context to that sentiment where people are very threatened by dogma. And of course, we all, we're living in it. I mean, uh, you know, we think of the dogma that's driving the Middle East right now and the religious wars. And uh, we think of the idealism that gets in the way of our politics. And so I understand. I think that's a, that's a valid fear, isn't it? And I would even say it's a valid fear, what you guys described, is doctrine getting in the way of unity. The fact of the matter is, you know, oftentimes when doctrine, as we're going to see later, is undiscerned in terms of its use, it will become a, a, a problem or a hindrance to unity. You know, we're going to talk a lot about not just what, what we believe, but but what certain how we should use certain beliefs. Certain beliefs are, are useful in some ways, but not in other ways. Um, to give you an example, I mean, I suspect we have a church right now where we have people who don't believe in the doctrine of, let's say, uh, hell. Now, is the doctrine of hell a prerequisite to being a, uh, a, a Christian? Could you be... I mean, we do believe in hell here. That's one of the doctrines we're going to discover. Probably one of the hardest things I know that I believe. I do think it's probably one of the most difficult things to believe. It's just almost irreconcilable to what we say about God and his love, etc. So we got some problems with that doctrine. And, you know, at least emotionally we do. And we might have to deal with that later on. But, but just for a moment, what if we use that doctrine as a, a measure of who's a Christian or not? You see, that would be, huh? We'd be in big trouble. Yeah, because a lot of people, you know, haven't come to that place where they've reconciled hell with a loving God. That's a maturity, a, a theological maturity issue. It might not be, are you a Christian or not issue, though. 
Um, and so there's going to be a lot of examples where, yeah, people have been hurt by dogma and that they're well-intended, perhaps even legitimate and, and uh, authentic relationship with Jesus Christ is then called into question by some people in its entirety because of a certain doctrinal differences. And that's the problem. What, what about that group back there? The women's discipleship group. group. Somebody want to talk? Well, so one of the points came out is that you can water it down so much that you just even, that someone heard on the radio, uh, just we all need to love one another. That's yeah. So it's very easy to try to find the commonality if it's very <clears throat> broad. Like I'm so glad you guys talked about that. Because that really gets to the heart, I think, of Dorothy Sears' essay, hasn't it? It's, you know, hey, if we start neutering it too much, every time you neuter it, you're just taking the drama right out of the faith. You know, it, it's not very exciting if it's all, I mean, I think, you know, what's, you know, a beige curtains and, you know, a riddle house painted house is a very ordinary and boring house. You know, like, I remember we were, we do a little rental property and we got the painters over and we had all these wonderful color schemes for it. And the painters said, oh man, you're just making a huge mistake, man. You, you want beige everywhere. <laughs> I said, no, I don't care if they react horribly to our orange room. We do have an orange room in our rental property. I just want you to know that. Uh, I love it. My daughter chose the color, so I had to use it. That's what happens when your daughter's going off to college and she suggests something. You just, oh, yeah, sure, anything you want to. But no, it's the coolest room in the house. But yeah, uh, it's going to get a reaction. It's going to get a reaction. But to me, I'd rather get a reaction. And I think it's her, her point. Would, I would rather get a a very strong reaction against Christ than no reaction. To me, I think Christ is more honored to be reacted to than to be uh, yawned at and boring and irrelevant. So great. That was a good conversation over there. You guys around here? Anything come out of your conversation? We talked about about the crack underneath foundational principles because yeah, it's built upon a rock. Yeah. You know, everything stems from that. Yeah. Um, and without core doctrine, you know, it's you have this shaky foundation. Right. And it's all relative. Everything right. is relative. You know, no one has any beliefs. Yep. Um, it becomes very wishy-washy. It does. And you know, the sad thing about that, thank you very much. You guys are good. We're already, we're already starting to collaborate here. But, you know, you, you know, I have seen this. I know the other pastors have seen this. And others, that, that, um, you know, you need a pretty substantial rock that's going to support you going through life. I mean, you know, you're going to go through things that are going to rock your your spiritual life. You know, whether it's suffering, whether it's hardship, whether it's nuanced ethically at the workplace and you're trying to figure things out. And if your foundation, you know, is is this big, like a mushroom plant, and it's not like the oak tree root system, you know, the winds are going to come. Isn't that what Ephesians says? If you know that passage, he's saying being rooted and grounded in faith, the faith. That's a, that's a noun there, not faith as in a verb, believing kind of thing. And, you know, being rooted and grounded in faith that the winds might, you know, not blow you over like a weed. So I, I hear you making that point, I think, that, that um, you, you you know it's it's sad to me, but oftentimes people make decisions, 
and they come in for counseling, and that's good. That's a good thing to do. But one of the things I say is, you know, you just can't, at the time that you need to make a decision, expect that you're going to have this whole web of system of belief in place that's going to make you wise. Wisdom is the result of that foundation. The assumptions, the presuppositions that you give. What is your doctrine of God? How does that relate to whatever comes to pass in this world? Um, what is your doctrine of your own personal assurance? How is that going to interpret how you interpret that car wreck? If you go into a car wreck and you have not wrestled with the issue of, of assurance, the doctrine of assurance, that's going to then take you with this little web that we have. Let me, that's a great example. Let me just give you an illustration. So if you were to talk about assurance, well, what does that doctrine, that little part of a doctrine, what does that doctrine involve? Well, it's going to presuppose your understanding of, of, the, of, the, uh, of the purpose of the cross. It's going to get you into this doctrine that we describe as justification. But it's also going to get you into this doctrine that's described as effectual calling, as in, okay, I know Jesus died for somebody out there. That would be, you know, he made atonement for sins doctrine. But how do I know that that death on the cross applies to me? Well, that's going to be effectual calling doctrine. And... How do I know that when I decided to, to, to and pray to receive Christ, that that wasn't just me because I was having a bad, you know, uh, decade? <laughs> you know, uh, what can I know about God? And, and now you're going to go back to his sovereignty and his decrees and even this idea of divine election. And all of a sudden you are working a God, I, you know, I don't know how to think about this car wreck that I just got in. And very quickly it's unpacking what is your doctrine of assurance? What is your doctrine of providence? What is your doctrine of effectual calling? What is your doctrine of justification by grace through faith alone? Do you see how many doctrines I just piled up and they all are coming together to inform you? How is it then should I live because of this car wreck? How should I respond to this issue? Should I be wondering if God's mad at me? Or should I be thinking more in terms of God is coaching me? Which would be two options right there. So, under wonderful see how i hope you're, you're getting warmed up yet and this going to be fun so hopefully you're getting a sense for that um any thoughts or questions so far again i'm going to stop every once in a while but is there something you're just kind of dying to talk about or ask or something that came up in the group and those of you who are on uh, the webcam can type and we'll get the a question there as well anybody have a thought or question yeah good Mm-hmm. Was she going back to kind of the creeds across time and um, just the gospel, or what did she mean? No, that's a great, great, great. I believe that she would mean that, like you just said, it's it's the confessional is the history of the church understanding the scriptures and what it principally teaches. The focal point being, of course, always in all of all of the Bible, the focus is going to be. A history that brings you to Christ. So some people will talk about you know doctrine differently. Someone can talk; they can refer to it as the gospel. In some ways, you could say the gospel is you know Genesis through Revelations. It's the story that brings you the whole picture of the gospel. Um, so I think that's what she'd be referring to is just this whole history of the church acting corporately, discerning together, forming a consensus about what the scriptures principally teach. 
about all those major issues and categories that pertain to the gospel, to life with God, etc. Great question. Thank you. Very good question. Anybody else? All right. So let's take a breath and let's walk and, 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 start and kind of pick up now with the beginning there. And the thing that I'm particularly interested in here is this whole idea of, um, uh, if you look at your handout there, uh, introduction, they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. Uh, as we come into this endeavor, it's entirely possible that you could have a lot of zeal for Christ, but without knowledge. And that was not something that, that Paul here affirms. Uh, Rick Lentz is writing about even evangelicals, those who, of all people, say that they hold, you know, to the truth of the gospel or whatever. It is not so much that evangelicals cease to believe anything theological, it is rather that belief is no longer central to their identity and program. And there's a, there's a context for these two statements. And if you want, you could turn back to page, I think, around 17 or 19, and, um, and I'm not going to, I'm just telling you that you have an addendum that you can go home and read. And it's going to walk you through big words like rationalism, subjectivism, democratization, etc. Trends that come out of the enlightenment that were toxic to doctrine, that were toxic to the idea of confessionalism. I won't go through that, but I want to, what I do want to do is hit on a, a, the way that these things tended to be a little bit popular. So if you think about it, um, have you ever heard the phrase, for instance, it's all a matter of one's own private interpretation? Y'all heard that, right? Now think about what that, that does. You have the Bible. We now, you could, you could stand up with your Bible, your big black book and say, or your big black iPhone like I've got with the Bible in it, and you can say, sola scriptura, man, the word of God is God's word. Even if you held to that belief. And yet, if you believed this, that really there's no possibility of interpreting it without it being an entirely subjective and questionable endeavor, then no matter how much you believe in the Bible, the Lordship of Christ has just been annulled through it. He can't talk to you definitively, can he, with that idea. Think about that for a minute. It's all a matter of one's own private interpretation. Have you ever been in a Bible study where you walk around, you open up the scripture, and someone says, uh, okay, read, you know, Jude 1. Somebody reads it. And then you go around the room. Well, what do you think it means? And in a context like that, what's going to be applauded? What do you think is going to be applauded? You're going around the room. What do you think is going to be, oh, wow. Well, that's great. Ooh, wow. Creativity. The more creative, the better. The more subjective it gets, the better. But of course, there's a problem. You've just lost the singular voice of God. If, as we said, if the Bible can mean everything and anything, then it means nothing. Definitively. It's only a matter of one's interpretation. But think about it. The Bible doesn't treat itself that way. Um, some of the passages, 1 Timothy, if I'm delayed, you may, that you, he's given all of this writing, he says that you may know how one ought to believe in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and bulwark of the truth. It's an astounding statement. I don't, I can't think of anywhere other than perhaps the commissioning of the apostles to lay a doctrinal foundation for the church. 
I can't think of anywhere where any single person is described in any terms remotely like the pillar and bulwark of the truth. But the household of God, the church, in the mystery of communion with Christ, becomes a pillar and bulwark of the truth. Now, we're going to differ from Rome and that we're going to say it's not an infallible pillar of truth. But we're going to differ from, say, the radical Anabaptist movement back in, in the 15th, 16th centuries, who said that there is no authorized reading of Scripture. We're going to believe with this passage, and there are many others, where God deposits his word to a community that is infused, that is gifted, that is blessed with the presence of the Holy Spirit, in union with Christ, so that by God's providence, God's sovereign presence, he can sufficiently direct us to get the original intent of the scripture throughout the generations. The Bible affirms that. That's part of the beauty and the miracle of, of what we're doing here. Some people call that uh, the canon, if you will, and, and a canonical way of thinking about the scripture, the scriptures given to the church as a rule of faith and practice. And the church then, over the centuries, will interpret it. Now, who's got the best shot at interpreting the scripture? Me, Preston Graham, by myself, up in my study. I even know Greek and Hebrew. Or, but I've got my lens, don't I? I've got my American lens. I've got my white male lens. I've got my southern, now northern lens, and whatever crazy things that did to my mind. Um, I've got all sorts of things that are coming through here, right? And every culture has a virus. Every culture has a intellectual, spiritual virus. I look back at some of the, the things that incredibly godly people believed in some eras of the church, and it's just fast. It's just unbelievable. I mean, most of us would think of slavery. I mean, some of the most godly people you've ever met in your life who had an incredibly robust and thoughtful doctrine of, of Christian faith and practice, how on earth could you have come to that position? There was a cultural bias. They, they were blind. And every culture has it. And so this might be one of our blindnesses, this idea of subjectivism. And uh, the idea, so yeah, we need to read our Bible with people of all cultures, people of the Southern Hemisphere, the Northern Hemisphere, and, the, and we need to read it with people who went out and cut chickens' heads off before they went and read their Bible in the morning, like in the 16th century. And somehow our worldviews, we're all reading the same text. It's not infallible, but we have a very good shot at getting, in a sufficient manner, what the Scriptures principally teach. So that would be one trend that we're going to say, you know what? It's not really all a matter of one's own interpretation. There actually is a pillar and bulwark of the truth that we believe God covenanted with to, to bring about a confident interpretation of the scripture to know what we're supposed to believe and do. That'd be part one. Now, another modern cliche, maybe you've heard. Have any of you heard the cliche? Um, uh, the common sense of the majority is always right. I mean, common sense. It's just, trust your common sense. How many people have heard that? 
it's it's the pillar and bulwark of a democracy, isn't it? Now, the very heart and soul of democratization that came out of an enlightenment individualism is this notion that the masses can be trusted. But, but how does that fit with scripture? Have you ever thought about that? Is it true that what is popular is true? Matthew 7, enter through the narrow gate. For the gate is wide and the road is easy that leads to destruction. And there are many who will take it. For the gate is narrow and the road is hard that leads to life. And there are few who find it. Or Matthew 22, many are called, but few are chosen. I said many are invited, but not everybody listens. Um, what do you think of that? This idea that, that the way we would determine authenticity is not by virtue of reading the Bible with the church of every age, what we mean by confessionalism, but we're going to just see where the most people go to church, and that's going to be true. That's how we know truth. Or what will people vote on on election day? That's truth. Now, don't be wrong. I know I'm sounding, I'm pushing back on some things. There's, there's some brilliance to democratization, too. And there's some brilliance to individualism, too. We're not anti-individualist. We're not anti-democratization at some level. It's just trying to push back to get it a little bit more balanced. You know, the fact of the matter is, we see it all through the Gospels, where Jesus rebukes the crowds for following him because they were just looking for an experience. They weren't really following him as Messiah. You remember that? I mean, isn't it odd? Do you, do you know, how many times did you hear, especially in, in Mark's gospel and elsewhere, Jesus saying, don't tell anybody. Keep this a secret for a while because the masses were going to pollute it. He had, to, he had to do some things and teach some things before it could become public. You know, we were talking the other day about planning a church, and uh, one of the strategies that we've used in planning churches is we have what we call a secret launch, where, where at first uh, the congregation will, will begin to, to, to worship and do it, and it's a public service, but we're not, I don't mean it's really secret, like going into a place, but, but we're not quite publicizing yet because we want to make sure that, that we, just, we figure out who we are as a worshiping community so that we're prepared for when the crowds come. And there's enough people and a, and a foundation for that to happen to where we don't lose the church or the kind of church we want to lose. You see what I'm saying? So that's, that's another. Or, and I'll give you just one more. And these are all a little bit heretical coming out of the culture that makes us so skeptical about doctrine. That's what I'm doing right now. The other one's what I call uh, the nothing buttery interpretation. Now, where does that start from? I, I won't go into the philosophical, but we live in, in a modernity. It's what we call a philosophical foundationalism. And the idea of that is you have to reduce something to its lowest common denominator. You have to reduce something in its most atomistic way possible. If you know the Cartesian Revolution, anybody know that? What, what, what was that most fundamental idea? Anybody know? Not you. You can't talk. Neither can you, pastors. <laughs> What is that most fundamental idea that, that we call the Cartesian Revolution? I think, therefore I am. It just starts with me. I mean, it's radical, philosophical, you could call it, narcissism. And, and so, yeah, I know that I am. I think, so therefore I am. And now, what are you going to do? We're going to build everything. We're going to construct a theology. We're going to construct our notion of God. Everything based on my experience, based on what I can comprehend, 
Now, I have a problem with that. Do you? Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind that you may be discerned what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. Or even better, um, think of Romans. I don't have it here. Romans chapter 11, where who, who knows the mind of God? How can we possibly fit him into my little mind of categories? So what the Cartesian resolution did is it, 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 it de facto ruled out of order the notion that there is such a thing as we would call revelation. That is a revelation that informs us in our mind, not our mind informing what we can believe about God. And so there's a kind of notion out there that less is more. And that's true probably in a lot of things. And I suspect we could learn a little bit about that in this church. Less is more sometimes. But when it comes to, to how we do theology... No, we're going to embrace mystery here. We're talking about God. So mysteries, it's cool. It's cool that every single article of faith that we're going to study this year, in some ways I'm going to suggest to you that I have not done my job if you're not by the end of the lesson exasperated to the point of, oh my God, this is so much bigger. Now, I don't mean by that that you didn't learn a lot and a lot you can use. If, I'd also be a failure if that doesn't happen. But, but in some sense, remember, what are we talking about here? Anybody? What, what is theology? Yeah. It's the study of God. And by definition, if God is something or someone that I can fully understand, then he's not worthy of worshiping him anymore. He's not God. By definition, God has to be what? What are some of the... Category, uh, what are some of the ways you would describe God if you really believe God? Throw them out. Omniscient. Omniscient. As in all-knowing. What else? Incomprehensible. Who else? We'll go around the room here. All-powerful. All-knowing. All, 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 all. Most, most, most holy. Most loving. Most, you're going to see these kind of Exactly. And when you hear all that stuff, you're going to go, of course, every single category or article of faith is an exploration of God and how he reveals himself through these various aspects of his salvation story. Every doctrine we, we we're going to study in this class will be about God, which means every doctrine we study ought to do two things. It ought to exasperate us to humility and it ought to move us to worship. That's confessional theology. Um, so that's just a little bit of the history behind that. Um, have I said anything you want to stop and, and slow down on real quick before we go back to the handout? This is all just introduction. I, I can't wait. We're not doing the real theology yet. We're talking about doing it. We're not doing it, which is kind of boring, honestly, but we're going to have to do that. Any other thoughts, though? What do you think? Anybody have a thought on what we've talked about? So I can drink my coffee? Yeah. Can you say that all one more time? The what? From the beginning? Yeah, sure. Well, did I hear somebody back there? Yeah, so uh, is, is there a doctrine that the Bible can even be read confession? Well, I've even read one already, but the very notion that we're, we're exhorted to believe 
you know, to believe on these things. I mean, all through the scripture, it, there's the command. So why would God command us? That would be the first thing I'd say. Why would God command us to do that which we can't do? You see, now we can't do it infallibly, but that's that's the that is the uh, you know that's what we call a, 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 a rhetorical fallacy. If you can't, there's a fallacy that says if you can't know something completely, you can't know it at all. Now I know that's not true. You know, I know there's a, I don't understand, uh, I use this, you know, that big tree out there. Uh, some of you guys know it much more than I do from a, you know, organic kind of point of view. But I do know trees. And I know them enough to know that when I was a little boy, I'd run into one and it hurt. So you see, I know trees. I just don't know them like as all just would know them. Or not as all, whatever. Botanists. You see, so so that would be the idea. I mean, I'm not sure if I'm hitting on your, your question, but the first thing I would say is that, I mean, we're going to actually, if you go to that, um, I'll tell you what, though. It's also the question that's behind what we call historicism. And in the addendum that I gave you, there's a whole section on historicism. And I give you a wonderful uh, response from various uh, authors on how do we uh, how do we approach this idea that, there is the possibility of, of gaining truth and knowledge from Scripture in our interpreting of it. That's, that's historicism and, and the question behind it. Well, I'm not so sure um, I've addressed the process yet. Confessionalism is almost more the telos, or it's the purpose of reading it. We're reading the scripture in order to believe it, not in order to satisfy a rationalistic, logical system that's, that's arbitrarily been chosen, wherein we can conclude that something's good or evil. You see what I'm saying? So we're, we're, it's an exercise of belief formation is what I mean by confessionalism. And the idea from Scripture that that belief is given to us in the Scriptures sufficiently and that the Scriptures have been given not to me just privately and individually. It's been given to the church, wherein with the church, remember, we believe in supernatural, Holy Spirit, you know, and so therefore it's the we will get into doctrines like illumination and the distinction between illumination doctrine and revelation doctrine. And we'll get into a lot of those things that might... Get to your question, so I may not be understanding it, but that's, I think that's the gist of what I would say, though. That, there, that, that it's going to start with the idea that I believe in God, and, and that's next week. We're going to look at uh, how, you know, general revelation and, and the idea of the knowledge of God. And once I believe in God, I believe in a God now that is present, not the deist God, but the present God, and with therefore the confidence that God can enable me to discern what he has intended me to discern from scripture. But then looking at the scripture and discerning, well, what does the scripture do? How does the scripture teach us to read itself? And there's lots that the scripture will teach us to do that. Maybe that's kind of generally what I'd say. All right. Other questions? Good. Thank you, Fred. Yeah. Yeah. I think we're, we're talking about this in two different uh, directions. Mm -hmm. One direction is what do I believe personally and how does that fit with what a community yeah. believes? 
And historically, that would have been turned on its head, what you just did, the order of that. Right. Historically, it would have said, what does my community, what does the community of faith believe, therefore I believe it. And I'm trying to, that's been very (laughs) anti-American. That's a very anti-individualistic way of reading the Bible. And I'm trying to push back on that and say, no, it would be exactly the way I would expect it, that God would give his, his, his word to a community, a community infused with the Holy Spirit, a community of sinners, but one sinner cancels out another sinner, especially in the light of the fact that, that there are cultural sins, culturally specific sins. In, in, in one denomination, uh, the Apostles' Creed was said for a long time, we believe. Right, exactly. It got changed to I believe. Oh, yeah. I think all of our creeds should be we. Absolutely. I'm with you that. But we're talking, you're talking, we're here to learn about the we creed. We, even as we are informed individually as to then how to live and, and believe and live. That's right. Well, let's look at this real quickly. Um, a, a couple other. So, so I'm just going to point out a few things, and this is going to get to some of your definition issues. Um, by the way, we will be through uh, uh, by 830. That's the goal every week. Um so just this, what is confessionalism? Let's, let's just read it here. Confessionalism is the process whereby the church adopts a corporate consensus as to what the scriptures principally teach. Now notice principally. That means generally. Um, it's not the, 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 the art and the beauty of what we do on Sunday through exegeting or, or preaching through whole books of the Bible is there's an amazing depth of nuance and flavor and spice and all of that. So what we're talking about here, creeds or confessions typically are driven by controversies. As in, well, well who is Jesus? So the church comes together. We call that an ecumenical council. You know, and that council comes together and discerns. By the way, anybody know when the first ecumenical council was in the Christian church? You can't answer that. Pastors, you not allow until I need your help. Not... Anybody want to guess? This is a trick question. That was a trick question and she got it. That was awesome. Acts 15, that's right. The first ecumenical council. And by the way, that's why from the foundational documents of the apostolic church, they taught us how, that would be a great answer to your question, Fred, they taught us how to resolve controversies about interpreting scripture. They got people from different regions, all filled with the Holy Spirit, all with the same scriptures, and they deliberated it. She, she gets the reward today, right there. Um... So, yeah, so where was I? Um, Confessionalism, principally. So then it goes on. um, Principally, based upon shared exegetical conclusion and utilizes this consensus as the basis for Christian faith, practice, and unity when acting as a church. Or, stated plainly, the confessional church is any church whose identity is most essentially what it believes and whose beliefs drives what it does. Confessionalism means that we are, li- we, are, we are deeply committed to discerning what we believe with the church of Jesus Christ and with conviction about what we believe, living what we be- doing what the belief would imply that we do. 
Um, there's this wonderful little psalm. This is, says it beautifully. Let the redeemed of the Lord say so, as in confess it. Don't hold it back. Don't be wimps. Be dramatic as in this confessional sense of Dorothy Sayers. And so what is the ultimate goal, do you think, of, of, uh, of this confessionalism? And here I put it, it's to preserve the apostolic faith, not supplant it. You know, a lot of people, have you ever heard the word no creed but the Bible? Does someone just just absolutely destroy that for me? What's wrong with that? Step back on the balcony. What's wrong? Man, you've already got way too many awards today. I'm afraid you're going to get another one. Okay, go ahead. Yes, good. Oh, man. we got to stop. You guys, stop this girl. She's good. No, thank you. That's great. Yeah, I mean, that's a creed. I was talking to someone uh, not long, or pretty long ago, actually, a pastor of another church that calls itself non-denominational. Watch. By the way, what, what does denomination mean? Anybody? All right, Kevin, go ahead. How would you define denomination, the word denomination? Yes, it's something, you've named it, you've defined it. It's, it's a church without definition. Now, I know they don't mean that. So this person said, well, we're not a nominational church. We don't believe in creeds. And so I just said, all right, um, I knew this church would be a fairly evangelical church. Do you marry gay lesbians in your church? Oh, no way. You know, really? Well, who says? Well, we do, our church. <laughs> you know, we believe the scripture says that. According to whose interpretation? Well, our interpretation. Well, okay. Now, what do you call that? That's a creed. That's a denomination. You know, and I'm, we, were, we were having a little fun. It was not a harsh conversation, I promise. But it was just sort of bantering about, but helping them think, they'll think about this for a minute. But here's the danger. If, if, you, if you're a quote non-denomination, and by the way, there's some great non-denomination, thank God none of us are consistent with what we say all the time. So there's some great denominational churches that call themselves non-denominational. Okay? So let's just get that out. I'm not trying to bash any church here. We don't want to do that at all. Um, but my point in saying there's no creed but the Bible, it, it's, it's, just, it's, a, it's, it's, it's dangerous because what typically happens is, therefore, if the church hasn't intentionally, corporately formed a belief, a, a denomination, a an understanding of what the scriptures principally teach. And that wasn't an intentional process with all the kind of rules that come into being intentional, then it really becomes the denomination of the celebrity pastor. Now I know pastors pretty well. I happen to know one really close. He lives in my bed. And you do not want pastors determining the creed of a church. We've got so many temptations to do you bad i.e. my living depends on it, to say what I know you're going to like me to say. I mean, every one of us would love to keep our jobs. We love families too, you know? And I would love to say things to you that would make you say, oh, I love this pastor. Now, I hope I'm very careful not to be motivated that way, so you can pray for us. But the point is, why would you take someone who's got such a vested interest in pleasing you or being, or, or being successful in a world how can that person be a prophet? But as it stands, if you go to a denomination church or a church that has a creed, now I understand that I'm under authority. 
that, that I can preach the scripture, but I've got to preach it within the parameters of what of those markers, if you will. I can't just go off the reservation. And if I were to go off the reservation, there's a process for me to explore that in our system where I can appeal that and we can go through a whole series of motions where we review the scriptures, etc. But it's not something you'd want me doing all by myself, you know, with maybe 15 hours of study that week before the sermon. And just literally dismantle 2,000 years of consensus. That would not be a healthy place for you to be, you see. So, so that's this idea of, um, to, the idea of a creed was, if you go to almost every creed, it will tell you the reason there is a creed is to preserve the authority of Scripture against every individualistic interpretation of it. It's to preserve the authority of Scripture. Um, and you see it all through this passage here that you have on your, your handout, Matthew 28, etc., uh, where you see that music. If you want to know church history a little bit, I'll give you a little graphic here. Um, I, I was in a uh, doctoral studies program in Aberdeen, and I, I became very close friends to a, a, a Catholic. The, the professor was a Catholic, and he was about my age. And this was his diagram of how he understands church history and the relationship of, of confessionalism and the different... Um, so I give you this because it, it kind of gives a little bit of credibility that it's coming from someone outside my own tradition, but who's a good scholar and a good historian. So there's basically three options for how we could use creeds. Um, one would be uh, the Roman Catholic, and this is his. Scripture through tradition to us. So I like this except that it makes tradition infallible. You see that? There's no, there's no arrow, as you're going to see in the next one. The second one, on the other extreme, is the Anabaptist, historic Anabaptist. This doesn't mean necessarily Baptist today, let's be fair. Um, this is more of a, what Luther called the fanatics, what today would be honestly described as charismatics, or at least some brands of charismatics. Um, and um, it's, just, it's just private revelation. It's revelation, private interpretation. It's the idea that... that the scripture, and oftentimes scripture is viewed not so much as the as revelatory as, as it is a window into the revelation that comes into me. You know, that, that, that's called, uh, there, there's a whole heresy that that's called, called neo-orthodoxy. And it's this idea that, that where is the kerygma, we call it? Where's the kernel of truth? We're going to say the kernel of truth is implanted in the words of the scripture themselves. The very... Words, verbal, we call it inspiration. There's another view that says, no, the words are like a window or like a, 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 a means through which the revelation comes to me. Now, see, that'd be Anabaptist and the Orthodox. The third option is what we would call ourselves, where you have scripture and you see scripture is informing all. You have a tradition. You have a magisterium, which means a council in our case, an ecumenical council. And there's this constant conversation going on between the, the scripture as it informs this process. You see that the triangle up on the top? That's the, that's the kind of her, the, the hermeneutic triangle. But the triangle is in every point, all three of the points of the triangle are accountable to the scripture directly. And so when we talk about creedalism, that's what we're talking about within our tradition. It's not scripture, 
you know, ex cathedra tradition, us. It's not scripture, us. It's scripture as it is interpreted in this very organic, bottom-up, top-down, I went opposite to that, top-down, bottom-up, triangular, sort of ongoing process. So, you know, let me walk that out for you. Um, 15 years ago, a guy named Ben Lau comes into my office crying. Ben is from Singapore. He'd come to Christ through this church. He was a Christian. He professed faith in Christ, but he had never been baptized. He comes into my office crying, literally crying. And he says, Pastor, i got to talk to you. I said, what's wrong? Pastor, I've been reading the scripture, and everywhere it talks about being baptized. And I'm not baptized. So I decide I want to get baptized. And I, and I do what I do. He has a very tight-knit family. He goes to his family and says, where's this? You know, I'm a Christian. And, um, and they've known that for some time, that he'd been a Christian. And they're all right with it. And now I want to be baptized. And they absolutely forbid it. And so he comes off and says, do I need to be baptized? Now, <laughs> I love them. And I really love families. And I'm thinking, now come on. Baptism really isn't essential. I mean, you know, I was coming out of my little, you know, that's just one of those non-essential things. But something bothered me. Why would he command it? Why would making disciples require baptism? And all of a sudden I realized, and that's the us part, that here I am with Ben in a counseling relationship, and I'm wrestling with whether or not baptism is, is really commanded of Christ or not. And I'm now going to go to where? Well, I'm going to go to the scripture, and I'm reading with them, and I see clearly it's commanded. I see clearly that's at the foundation of the apostolic doctrine. But my notion of it was that's as far as I could go. And then I said, well, Ben, tell me why your parents don't want you to be baptized. And Ben said, well, my parents believe that, that there is a divine presence in the world. And that for me to, to, to be baptized is to transfer where my identity is, where, my, where I'm leading the presence of the God of Taoism, a kind of Buddhist Taoism, a family God, and therefore rejecting the God of their family. Fast forward five years. That's what began the process for me to rediscover what I call real sacramentalism. That was the process through the tradition that I have, through the councils, etc., of reading scripture, where I began to realize, you know what? The parents were right. That Eastern, they had a perception of Christianity and of religion that I had not had for my Western rationalistic mind. For me, if you pray, if you, it's all rationalism at that time. It was all a rationalist gospel. The good news of Jesus Christ, proclaim it, you receive it, make a decision, and you're saved. And then I start reading Augustine. Then I start reading our own confessions and how grace is conferred through baptism. What? Not necessarily, not necessarily immediately divine, you know, predicated upon divine election, but Ordinarily, there's a real effectual event that happens when someone gets baptized. Because there's a real presence of Christ acting in, with, and through the church. Not necessarily. Not necessarily needed because it's a fallible church. But you see what just happened? That I just literally walked through the triangle with you. Where I was reading scripture privately. I was challenged by a brother who from Singapore. And here I am as a pastor trying to counsel him, going to the scriptures... 
and needing the help of my tradition and that tradition as it had been over as it had had taken issues to the council and ecumenical councils one called Westminster and you can go to many others and through the whole process I came to discern what I call a temple church and that that's what's going on here and that's what we mean by confessionalism belief was was important to us any questions about that this little paradigm yeah Yes, he was. And I went to his graduation, and his parents were there. We hugged him. We didn't kiss, but we hugged. They, 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 they did initially, um, you know, give him some kind of a pronouncement of excommunication kind of thing. But they, they eventually really saw his life change, etc. And we helped Bim under help. We worked with Bim a long time to how to communicate it with the parents so that they weren't, he wasn't rejecting the family, he wasn't rejecting that aspect of, of Taoism that was common grace and could still be affirmed, etc., etc., etc. It really looked just like what happened to Paul when he says, to a Jew I'll be a Jew, to a Greek I'll be a Greek. How can he as a Christian be Taoist and yet not deny his faith? And that's what, what ended up happening. So those are just some great, by the way, he's still a friend of the church, still on Facebook with him, he's just a wonderful guy, he's a wonderful family. Everything happily ever after. I like to hear those stories every once in a while. Any questions about the diagram? That's confessionalism. Another way to look at it is we're talking about an ecclesial of spirituality. Somebody look at the, the illustration. This kind of shows you a little bit of, this is a little bit of tongue-in-cheek here. But do you see the diagram there? Churches and Christian movements throughout history. And that's, that's pretty true. And what would it be to read our Bible by ourselves as a CPC congregation? Well, that's what it would, that's kind of the craziness of it. Y'all, can y'all read it? So this is where our movement came along and finally got the Bible right. There is Jesus is so lucky to have us. That's kind of crazy. This is the membership class. No, I mean this is not how we read the Bible. Uh, we understand ourselves to be part of a great family of reading the Bible, a family of many traditions. And to try to illustrate this, how, how many of y'all know about the lost gospels or Gnosticism or, you know, there's in the book that came out, Armin, you know, two Christianities. Um, to show you just how unified we are, if you were to take the Eastern Orthodox, the Roman Catholic, and all the Protestant churches on earth, compared to Gnosticism, which was the first or the second big ecumenical council movement that had to take place, Marcionism really before that, but we're right around that period. But if you were to compare what we all agree together, for instance, things like the serpent was bad, not good. You know, things like the body and the, and the spirit are both sacred. And I could go on and on and on and on. Um, you can appreciate just how much we can still learn from one another. That if you were to take, and that's why we have things like the ecumenical creeds, or the Catholic creeds, the Nicene, the apostles, etc. And you can go down. Yes, we start diverting on some things. Usually, the major diversions are about um, how we view the role and the authority of the church. Now, there were some other issues that that, that filtered into, particularly about you know, and so you could go right through the line. That's actually an oversimplification. Yes, there's some nuances about Christology that, that crash the church on one end, and then you, you just keep going. But the point we want to make is that, that 
you know, this, there really is a community, a family, if you will. So, so with that, just, just very briefly, look at some of the, the usefulnesses of the creed. You see these on page four? The usefulness um, is, is, these are out, out of Hodge, which if any of you skimmed it, I knew that was a lot, and I didn't expect you to do it, honestly, but you might have tried. Um, here are a couple of them. One, and I'm just going to hit them, as a basis for Christian unity. Again, we affirm that. And you see a lot of scriptures there that talk about unity of faith. Um, if not unity of faith, then unity of what is the question the table over there asked. Obviously, it's useful for instructions. Um, why we make this an essential class for all of our Sunday school teachers and all of our facilitators is we want to be careful to make sure that even at the kindergarten level, we have teachers that at least know where the, the ditch in the road is. I can't tell you, and I'm sure Kevin and, and others can say the same thing, I can't tell you how many times I'm in a counseling situation and it was a Sunday school class that started a, a, a trajectory that ended up in a car wreck spiritually. And I have to literally unpack. Well, I thought, you know, I could just come up with several. I mean, you know, the doctrine of assurance is huge. Um, the unpardonable sin. Uh, you know, you can just go to all these other things. And all of a sudden, you've been acting on this trajectory for 20 years. And... And just if they had an ecumen, if they just had a creedal, it would have it would have reserved it just like that, you know. Um, and if, if so, so this idea of instruction is huge. But what are you what are you going to teach if not your own ideas about what the scriptures teach? You're going to teach what the church of two thousand years has has formed as a consensus as to what the scriptures basically believe. The consensus is fallible. By the way, in our confession in chapter 1, the first thing it's going to tell you is if you have any controversy, don't look to us. That's what our confession is going to say. Go to the Scripture. Got to go to the Scripture. That's our only authority here. The confession is only as good as it honors and respects the authority of Scripture. Um, so for instruction, um, for ecclesiastical discipline, you know, this you say, whoa, uh, ooh, that's a big word. Don't worry about it. The point being is if... I have found that the more confessional a church is, the more intentional they are at regulating themselves in light of the robust scripture or doctrine that they hold. The more loose you are uh, theologically is where you see most of the abuses. Because now you, you have all this human reaction going on, this unregulated and undefined by a history of the church. Reading scripture together. It's amazing how it, re it reduces, a, the more, it's the, it's the inverse of what you expect. The more the church believes, the less powerful or the less abusively powerful is the church. You, can anybody tell me, explain why I would say that? Just, I want to get you, make sure you're thinking about it. Yeah, I'm going to let somebody else do it. Give one more, I love your enthusiasm. Come on, somebody else. I want another hero in here. Now nah, you've already talked to. I want somebody else. Come on. Try it, somebody. Why would that make sense to you? That the more church believes, the more regulated, self-regulated it would become. Anybody want to guess? I guess that the knowledge of doctrine is known upon the entire 
Well, that's a good point, too. That's great. The congregation regulates itself from within and not just the clergy. A learned, a theologically learned congregation is going to hold the leaders in check. Hold it, Pastor. I thought we believed this. So that's good. I was actually thinking of something else, but that's a good one. Can anybody think of another way that that would do it? Okay. So, what do you mean by spirit led? Um, good question. I mean, to me, what I know of it is just like spending time communing with the Lord and, and just listening to His voice through Scripture um, and through conversation with people who might be mm-hmm. also in line with Him in the Word. Mm-hmm. Um, Okay, I like the spirit of that. Hey, hey, I like that. Um, no, I do. I like the spirit of that. I think so. Now make that conversation that you just talked about with God through the Scripture, with the other people, with now other communities of other places and times and eras, and now you formulate this this doctrine, this this system, or this confessional consensus that we call a creed or a confession of faith or whatever. What's going to happen is all my idiosyncratic ways, and churches have idiosyncratic ways, are going to get, you know, regulated, are going to get pushed back on. Hold it. You know, that, 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 how can you, and so what ends up happening is when a church adopts, I'll use that word, when a church adopts a creed and says, this is what we principally teach, then I can't come to you as a, as a leader and say to you, look, you know, um, you, can't, you can't wear white and blue shirts. White and blue shirts have symbols here, you know. Um, and you can say, well, where? And the guy says, well, and, and most pastors can probably say anything they want to say out of Scripture. I mean, honest to God, and you could too. We, we all know the power of rationalization. You're my pastor. Teach me what to believe. I take you to Scripture. Don't you see the apocalyptic literature and symbolism of blue in Revelations? You see, you can't wear blue. All right? And all of a sudden now, your, 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 your conscience has been bound. But what you would say in a confessional church is, Pastor, I respect you. I love you. But is that a consensus? Does your, does, is that a consensus of the church? Have y'all read the church corporately together? And has the church together formed that as a consensus of what we believe? And, and then even within a church, you could say, church, how come you believe this? And no other, back to this little picture here, how come nobody else believes this? <laughs> you see? You see, what it's doing is it's, it's, it's holding accountable the pastor or the leader or the church itself, the little church itself that's out there in this corner. And it gives you pause. I'm not saying necessarily that all these people were wrong or right or wrong. But come on. We've been reading the same scripture and it, it gives you pause. You see what I mean? See, that's how it regulates the church. A confession is uh, the more confessional, the more regulated you're going to be for the two reasons you just said. And I just dropped the rest of my notes. I think we're really good. Yeah, I'm, I'm trying to see if I drop them here. I can get it. I just want to see if that was it. Ah. All right, we got a couple of, well, actually, just about, we're out. So let, let me just point out what's here, and then we'll just call it a day. 
for instruction, for a basis for evaluating, there's what we were talking about, true versus false uh, uh, teaching, etc. And let's just end with this. And then what I want to ask you to do is, is when you leave, starting in three there, our confessional history, that's just going to be a brief introduction to our family tree. And it's going to start with the apostles, and it's going to just walk you through and give you sort of the big picture of, of and what you want to see in this is that every, every as we go down the line, there are some branches that start to form. But the, the, the idea is that we share theology with every one of these traditions at some level. Even if we are moving in some various directions very subtly. But again, we probably agree, if you compare us to, say, Gnosticism or something else, 98%. You know, and there are some good nuances, and we'll talk about that stuff later. But here's what I hope that, that confessionalism will create in this class. And this uh, comes out of a, a book by Tremper uh, Longman. I hope that what will happen through our confessional study together is a culture of humble submission to Scripture revealed in a willingness to biblically regulate worship and practice. I hope that it will produce in us a high regard for the Christian scriptures as the only rule of faith and practice wherein the church, acting corporately, is careful to declare nothing save the whole counsel of God's word, not more, not less, as discerned by good and necessary inference. I hope that it will cause us to have a high regard for the scriptures in preaching that is expositional and Christ-centered, careful to discern the original intent by preaching right doctrines and articles from right texts. A humble regard for the church versus the individual is the pillar and bulwark of the truth, such as to read the Bible communally versus individualistically, including the use of historic creeds and confessions. And I use the word humble very intentionally. It is an act of humility to submit one to another when we read Scripture. And we're going to do that with our church for 2,000 years. A church that is careful to consistently teach and apply biblical authority is the friend of Christian revival and sanctification. In a culture of humble submission to scripture that is less prone to be blown away by every wind of doctrine and philosophy of ministry, as we see happening so often today. Father, I do pray, God, for this play, for this class, for our church. I pray for the humility to submit one to another in a collaborative effort as we submit to your one holy Catholic church, as that one holy Catholic church ultimately submits to the Lordship of Christ speaking through Scripture. And I pray, Father, that there would be revival here that as a result of this class and our conversations together, we really will feel and experience a revival and a renewal as we begin to believe these things with great conviction, and a conviction that gives us great love uh, as Christ loved the world, its sinners, and, and those who were called by you to be the body of Christ. And so help us, we pray, in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you. I know that was a whirlwind. Next week we start. This was just a big lecture-esque. You'll notice that it's a study guide and there's questions. So starting next week, there'll be a lot of... So kind of come prepared. You'll see the questions in it. And I'm going to be engaging you with your answers and grapplings, etc. Um, so thank you. If you have any questions, I'll hang around or you can talk to each other. <laughs>